Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Uh, like Frank said, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage Park, and it is my privilege and honor to, to have the chance to open the word with you guys. If you have a Bible, we will be in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. We're going to kind of take some chunks as we've been doing as we've walked through the book of Exodus. So we'll cover a lot of ground in scripture, but you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, but would like one, we have some uh, on the side of the tech booth. It'd be my right, your left. Uh, we would love for you to take that as a gift from us to you. Uh, take it with you as you go. That would be something that we'd just be glad to give you if you would like one. Um, and before we get into it, I, I just want to note uh, that this is really a weighty and a difficult text. We're, we're uh, kind of confronted with the judgment of God on uh, the people of Egypt, which is something that we wrestle with. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting that Trent took this week a vacation. So give him a hard time for that, that he dodged this one and left it to me. But uh, now he's out with uh, some friends of the family and out of town uh, for much needed R&R. But it is uh, something that we as a uh, church want to be people that believe the Bible, that put our lives, submit under the Bible. And so that uh, sometimes we talk about texts that really uh, are exciting and get to and, and, and love to talk about them and are encouraging. And other times we get to wrestle with difficult texts that sometimes we go, man, I this is, this is weighty, and that's what we will do this morning. But um, just a reminder, kind of if you've been tracking along with us over the past, uh, this is our fourth week, week in Exodus. Uh, the first week we talked about really Exodus 1 and 2, which were introduced uh, to where the people of God are at this moment in their history, that they are uh, being oppressed by an evil ruler, a pharaoh that uh, no longer remembers Joseph and what he did uh, to help uh, really save Egypt back in the day, but now we have a ruler that uh, is oppressing them and is distrustful of their growth and their population and even goes as far as saying, hey, we're going to kill the, the male children of all Israelites. And so kind of commits this genocide against the people of Israel uh, because of his uh, wickedness. Uh, and in this moment, we're introduced to, to Moses, who becomes the main, at least human character, and the person that God uses to deliver his people. Uh, and then the second week, we find Moses uh, far away from where you would think he would be. He's been exiled from Egypt. He's uh, in the middle of nowhere herding sheep on a, a mountainside. Uh, but it's just in this moment that he meets God. And it's a good reminder for us that sometimes our lives can take uh, radical turns and we find ourselves in a place that we never imagined. We go, man, how did I end up here? Uh, but sometimes it's in that place at that moment that God intersects us in a radical way and intersects with our lives. Uh, and then last week, after this meeting with God, uh, and God's telling him, hey, this is what I'm going to use you to accomplish, uh, Moses begins to obey. He goes back, and he tells Pharaoh what God told him to say, hey, let my people go. Uh, but in the short term, things actually end up getting worse, not better. Uh, Moses faces opposition not only from Pharaoh, but from the people he's sent there to rescue. Uh, they're griping and complaining and saying, hey, you are heaping these evil things on us. What are you even doing here? Uh, but Moses continues to, to obey God and God's command on his life. And this sets the stage uh, for God's deliverance and what God does in one of the most famous, uh, really, passages of the Bible, probably, the, the ten plagues of Egypt. Um, and that's how God works to deliver his people. Uh, and let's go ahead and admit, like, as we read this, like, each of us in our minds pictures Charleston Heston and Yul Brenner. Like, we can't get away from that for most people just because we watched it on Easter every year growing up. You'd find it on TBS or whatever. It was like, yeah, I'll watch this again, you know. Um, 
I've been doing it all week, seeing these guys, and it's a great movie. Uh, and this really starts in chapter 7, but we're going to jump in, in in chapter 11 and just focus in on the 10th plague, kind of the culmination, the climax of this encounter between Pharaoh and between the God of the Israelites. Um, and so if you will, if you have your Bible uh, and you have it open to chapter 11, we'll pick up uh, in verse 1. There we read, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague... I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, this is he speaking to Pharaoh, Thus said the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and the firstborn of all the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the, all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Uh, Just a a note kind of before we dive into the text, I think uh, one thing that is good to be aware of is when we talk about texts that sometimes are difficult and weighty things like the judgment of God on a people, there's a temptation for us to bring kind of our culture and kind of the the world we live in to the text before we really engage with it on its terms. Uh, And and think about it like this, like have any of you had the chance to take a a trip where you got to stay in a different culture for an extended period of time? I mean, this is when things like trips were possible, right? Like way back in the day before COVID and all that. But uh, we, me and my wife one time had a, an opportunity to spend three weeks in Italy, um, which was an amazing time. But one of the things that frustrated me in about the first week we spent there is we'd go out to dinner and we'd have great service and it would be a great time. And then when it came time, the meal kind of ended, we couldn't find our waiter for the life of me. Like you look around and trying to like wave him down. He just would completely disappear. And it's one of those things, okay, we have this sometimes in America. You know, you, you just don't have that great a wait service. Uh, but this was night after night after night. And so you're kind of like, what is the deal? And so I finally asked, like, where do you guys go? Like, what is the problem here? And they go, well, and what I learned from talking to them is uh, in Italy, kind of traditionally, the evening meal and dinner could take hours, like go well into the night. And so that kind of transfers over to their restaurant service where once you sit at a table, the table is yours until you want to give up, get up and you want to give it up. And so what they would do is kind of, instead of making you feel rushed, like, you know, in America where they want to flip the table because they want the next person to come in and sit down and pay them more money, uh, they were completely content just to back off and say, hey, you know, you can be here as long as you want. And this frustrated me because, you know, I'm an American. I'm on a schedule. Like, I've got, like, six things after dinner to go accomplish because this is a vacation and once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, but for them, this was, no, you just, it's your table. And so they would intentionally back off. And kind of as I, we spent more time there, I really learned that this permeates the entire culture. Like in at least northern Italy where we were, uh, traditionally they take the month of August off. And so you would go up to places, we were there in August, and like, oh, we need to check out this restaurant. And you go up, and there'd be like a piece of paper on the door. It's like, be back in September. And you're like, 
are you joking? Like, what is this? And it was so foreign to me because I came from middle-class America. Like, you work hard. You maximize your dollar. You do everything to be efficient and, you know, be at work on time and, you know, make as much money as you can. I'm like, if you're closed for a month out of the year, do you know how much money you're leaving on the table, people? Um, but really, it was kind of as I was engaged there and kind of reflected on this, is like, I mean, am I right? Like, what I'm doing is I'm coming from my cultural assumptions and saying this is how you live the best life possible. And really, this time in Italy, one of the things being in a different culture kind of allowed me to say, I mean, I don't know each one is right and one is wrong. It's just a different assumption about how do you live the good life? What's best to do with your time? And they had chosen, their culture had chosen, hey, the best thing to do with life is not work all the time, to take a lot of time to relax. And I mean, again, we can agree with that. We can disagree with that. Uh, but that's, you know, kind of that, me as a tourist in Italy was trying to say, no, the way I do things is right and the way they do things is wrong. And it was kind of began to approach that culture on its own terms and understand a little bit more about what they were about. In the same way, I think a lot of times we're tourists of the Bible. We bring our culture to the Bible and try to immediately go, oh, this is right, this is wrong, rather than appreciating the Bible for what it presents itself as. Uh, and I think the two ways we do this at this passage in particular is maybe based on your background. Uh, for a lot of Westerners, for a lot of people that um, maybe don't grow up in church, when they read passages about the judgment of God, the first place they go is, uh, no, God cannot or should not judge. Like, this is something that he should not do. There's no way that a loving God could act in such a way that we see him pictured here. And we don't have time. That's a, a great question that's worthy of consideration and worthy of discussion, and we don't have the time this morning. Um, we can engage. After the fact, I'll be out in the lobby. You can come by this week. Um, if you are a researcher or a reader, there's a guy named uh, Miroslav Volf. Uh, you know, write that in your notes. Uh, it's a, a theologian at uh, Yale for a long time. He may be retired now. I'm not sure, but um, has done a lot of this just to, to kind of write on this. I think it's a pretty compelling argument about uh, why that objection doesn't quite hold. But uh, for a lot of people, you kind of read this and you pull back from the text, and that's the where, just where you feel. And I, kind of, I can't, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, but for others of us that come to the text, maybe we grew up in church, we've been around church for a while, um, we almost have the opposite reaction, where we just kind of glance over this and think, of course God can judge. Of course he's right in doing this. Um, but where we kind of falter, I think, in this is when we think about God's judgment, it's always for them over there that have it coming. Like we see people and like, yeah, God's going to need to judge that. God's going to need to uh, bring justice in that situation. But we don't necessarily ever ask, what could it apply to me? Like surely me and God are good. Um, we couldn't have any issue. I couldn't be under the judgment of God. But I think both approaches, both, both approaches miss uh, what God has in store for us. So I'd encourage us to kind of, as we come to this, just look at how God presents his actions to us through the scripture and then see how this could, um, the significance for us today. And the first thing to note kind of as this passage unfolds in Exodus 11 is that the judgment of God that's declared here, it's never sudden. It's just never sudden. It feels sudden. Like, uh, I'm sure when you experience this for the Egyptians, uh, if we ever experience the judgment of God, it feels like it just happened all of them in a moment. But that's not the case. Uh, even here, this isn't the first time God's announced, hey, I'm going to do this thing because of Pharaoh's disobedience. In Exodus 4, uh, God, tells Moses, or, yeah, God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and if you don't, I'm going to demand the life of your firstborn son. That's... 
seven chapters ago, and then we fast forward to Exodus 11, and here Moses is kind of once again saying, hey, this is about to transpire, this is about to occur. But it doesn't happen immediately. There's the pronouncement of God's judgment to Pharaoh, and then we'll pick up here in a few minutes, uh, but he goes to Exodus 12, where Moses leaves this audience with Pharaoh. He goes to meet the elders of Israel, and he tells the elders of Israel, hey, this is what God's about to do, this is how we need to prepare. Now you guys go and tell the clans and the families and tell the people that you're kind of overseeing that this is going to happen and they need to prepare. And then they needed time to prepare. Like the scripture doesn't tell us how long this took place, but this is in a day and age. Like there's no Amber Alert buzzing everybody's phone saying, oh, by the way, judgment of God's about to happen. You need to go ahead and do these things. Um, Frank and I were talking between the services. you know, it's kind of like a hurricane warning on Space City weather. It's like, hey, by the way, in like two weeks, this may be happening. So go ahead and start preparing now. Um, somebody last year, somebody in the church, but I don't remember who it was, posted on Facebook that uh, living in a hurricane warning is like being stalked by a turtle. You know, like you kind of know it's coming. It just takes forever to actually happen. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, in some ways, kind of this judgment is like, there's this pronouncement of that's happening. There's this pronouncement, hey, this is coming. There's this thing, hey, you need to prepare. You need to get ready. But then he, God delays in doing it. And this is the consistent with Scripture uh, throughout kind of how God's character works and how he uh, works and moves in judgment. You know, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we read Adam, Adam and Eve uh, were commanded not to eat of the fruit of the tree or else uh, they would die. And they choose to disobey. And so they do have an immediate consequence. They get expelled from the garden. But then the kind of fulfillment of what God said is still a ways in the future. That they don't experience death until much, much later. Uh, Another kind of main moment in scripture where we see this play out is Noah. Like that the the world and uh, the time of Noah, the Bible says, has become so wicked that God just says, I'm going to start over with this one man and his family and rebuild from there. But he says, I'm going to judge the world. But it's not like, hey, so pack a bag and let's get ready to go. God says, so build a boat in your front yard. How long would that take? You know, how many questions from his neighbors did he get? How many letters from the HOA come to him about like, hey, by the way, we noticed, you know, you get that little picture and it's certified mail and all this. Um, God pronounced judgment, but then gives this long period of time before he actually enacts it. And so Moses tells Pharaoh to let God's people go. Pharaoh refuses. God says that he's going to strike the land with these plagues. uh, And Pharaoh doesn't listen. He refuses to make a a change. Um, And so God begins to enact what he said he would do. Uh, The first plague, it says he turns the Nile to blood. And this is Exodus 7. Uh, And the scripture says that basically Pharaoh is apathetic towards this. He just doesn't. He sees this judgment of God coming. He knows this is where it's going to go. He's heard it before, but he's... Heart of heart. Uh, my translation of scripture says this. It says that this is after the first plague, Pharaoh witnesses it and it says, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. But he just had this hard heart that he sees this is happening. God's announced it, but he just continues to persist in his disobedience. Uh, so it's not sudden at all. Um, it's severe, but it comes with a clear warning. This is consistent with the character of God. Uh, later in Exodus, we'll talk about this in a few weeks. Um, but God describes himself to Moses. Uh, there's a scene where God kind of says, this is who I am, and it becomes uh, really repeated throughout the Old Testament about the characteristics of who God is. 
but when God describes himself, he says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty. And so this is what God is acting even in the plagues. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger, but by no means will clear the guilty. And that's what we see here is that he's acting in judgment. That's not rushed or not a knee-jerk reaction, uh, but coming against those who are continually and persistently opposed to him. Uh, the second thing I'd kind of note from Exodus 11 uh, is that even in the middle of the judgment of God, when it does come, God provides a way out. Really two ways out, if you think about it. One is obedience. You know, Pharaoh was given a command. He could have obeyed, let my people go. If he had done that, this would be a much shorter book that we're studying because uh, we'd move forward. But he doesn't. He disobeys. He refuses what God has asked him to do. This is the same in Adam and Eve. They were given a command. Obey this and you'll avoid judgment. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree. Um, and this extends to us. This is something that Paul says in Romans that says, hey, every human being, every person that lives by virtue of being created in the image of God, by being uh, a creation of God, God has put something inside of us that knows certain truths to be true about who God is and what he's called us to be. But Paul says in Romans, again, chapter 1, that we have in our unrighteousness suppressed the truth, that because we want to go our own way and we want to obey what we want to do rather than what God calls us to do, that we have taken the truth that we knew somewhere deep inside and ignored it. In Romans uh, 3, Paul says it, the same thing in this. He says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6, uh, kind of picks that up again and says that the wages of sin are death. Uh, and the same consequences, if you look back again at the whole of Scripture, the same consequences that Adam and Eve faced for their disobedience and their failure to follow God was sin and death, or they sinned and it followed the death came. The same consequences the Bible says is over all human beings that have ever lived. And so one thing we don't think about often, but when we look at this, is that this isn't actually like a change in the consequences that were due the people in Egypt and Pharaoh's son. It was just a matter of not if they would face death and judgment. It was a matter of when. And God is saying in this passage that because of Pharaoh's persistent disobedience, that the judgment on their sin is not someday far in the future, but is actually coming at hand. Uh, but fortunately, God provides a second opportunity to avoid judgment. God in grace and mercy uh, provides this in its repentance to turn towards him, to begin to obey, to say we have been wrong, but in the future we're going to follow God fully. See, why didn't God just start with the tenth plague? Again, we could have saved a lot of time and effort and energy if we got here since we were going to get here anyway. But God gives plagues one through nine in order to give Pharaoh a chance to turn, a chance to begin to obey. And we see this, he actually almost does so many times. If you go back and you read 7, 8, 9, 10, you see out of the nine plagues, uh, five times Pharaoh repents. Five times Pharaoh asks God for deliverance from the plague. Five times Pharaoh goes, I will let you guys go. I will let the people of God go as God is demanding. Uh, there's actually some pretty eloquent language at times. At one point, um, <clears throat> I think this is at the eighth plague, but I may be 
cross there, but uh, he says this time, this is Pharaoh speaking, uh, he's begging Moses, he says, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Please plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, you shall stay no longer. What we see each time, each of those five times that Pharaoh asks for relief from the plagues, God grants that, God relents, God backs off. But what happens is each time, as soon as the plague is gone, Pharaoh, the Bible says, hardens his heart. Pharaoh refuses to follow through on what he said that he would do. See, he's sorry for the consequences that his actions are bringing on him, but he's not actually sorry or repentant for the heart that's refusing God. There's no humility there, no true repentance towards God. I think for many of us, we find ourselves there at different places in life. Like, have you ever experienced that where something happens in life and, you know, this came because I messed up. And we're sorry for the effects, we're sorry for the consequences, but deep down we're not really sorry for the action that brought them about. You know, oftentimes we regret and we can tell God we're sorry for the result but not really for the action. We can be just like Pharaoh where we fear the plague, but we don't actually fear God. But God knows the difference. God knows the difference between a repentance that's coming just from external actions, and it's just an external repentance, and one that comes from the heart. And this is what we see in this section of Exodus, is that through nine plagues, just exactly how resolutely in opposition Pharaoh's heart is to God and how much he stands uh, against him. And so in, in chapter 11, the 10th plague is announced, and even then, Pharaoh can turn. There's an opportunity for repentance, just like in later in the Old Testament. If you read about the kings of Israel, there were times they lead the people of Israel astray and lead them to chase other gods, to lead them to sin against God. And a few times God sends a prophet and says, hey, this judgment is going to come on you because of your disobedience. And a couple of times, this is a lightning bolt moment for that king. He goes, oh my gosh, we are so far in the wrong. And they lead the people to repent and to come back to God. And in that moment, God says he relents from what he was going to do, from the judgment that was going to come upon the people of Israel. So God, even the announcement of the judgment is an invitation to repent and to turn and follow God. But Pharaoh is, like we said, his heart is resolute in opposition to God Uh, And so God follows through with what he said. Let's jump down, if you've got your Bible, Exodus uh, 12, verses 21 through 30. It said, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill a Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. When you come to the land that the Lord will, will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went out and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And at midnight the Lord struck down the firstborn in the land of, the G- of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. 
the early books of the Bible, I think, kind of tell us important things about who God is. Uh, and if in, if in Genesis you can kind of sum that whole book up, the main kind of thing Genesis is communicating to us is that God is the creator. God created all that we know, all that is. He set it in motion. I think Exodus, in some ways, you can sub up in saying that God is not only just the creator, but God is still the ruler. God is in control. Exodus starts with a seeming situation where God is out of control, that God's people are in a, being oppressed, that the ruler goes so far as to kill uh, the males of all the newborn males of, their, uh, of the Israelites. But here, God is commanding and kind of taking control and saying, hey, this can go on, this wickedness, this oppression can go on for a time, but I'm going to step in now and flip that on its head. That even though Pharaoh would command the death of all the firstborn or the, all the male Israelites, that now God's saying, no, I'm the one that's in control of who lives and who dies. Um, Pharaoh still hasn't gotten this message, uh, even through the first nine plagues. Actually, we jumped in in chapter 11 uh, to a middle of an audience between Moses and between Pharaoh. Uh, and Pharaoh, actually, at this moment, right before we kind of picked it up, gets mad and, and commands Moses to get out of his sight. And he makes this remark. He goes, the next time you see my face, you will die. So even after nine plagues and all this thing happening, just one after another, to Vince Pharaoh, that he is not in control. He still thinks he's the person that commands life and death of Moses and the people of Israel. And here God's saying, no, that's not in your control. This is in my control. I am the one uh, that's driving the ship here. But this is more, the, the plagues are more than just uh, God's demonstration to Pharaoh and to the Israelites that they're not in control, that he is. Uh, he's actually working to demonstrate the entire inadequacy of the Egyptian way of life and how they looked at the world. Uh, if you've ever studied Egypt or kind of had a Western Civ class and kind of looked at ancient history, uh, one of the things that they talk about that's kind of different from our world is that the whole world was polytheistic at that time. Israel was actually uh, the first monotheistic faith that in, was known in world history. Um, but not only would they, were they polytheistic, meaning they had a bunch of gods, like they had a bunch of gods. They had a god for every aspect of life. Like if you lived in this region, you had a certain number of gods. If you lived here, you had a god for the Nile. You had a god for the harvest. You had a god for uh, the sun. You had a god for... Uh, I kind of did some research, and at least according to one uh, source, uh, the Egyptian kind of religious system had 51 major deities. Uh, not including the minor deities that they also had. Like, I have trouble remembering 51 people's names, you know? And, but here you have this religious system that's hyper-religious, that every aspect of life there was a God that you needed to sacrifice to, that you needed to appeal to uh, in order for good things to happen in your life. Uh, and not only that, it was kind of taken for granted um, that military success was based on the power of your gods versus the other nation's gods. Like, it was very much a my gods can beat up your gods kind of world that they lived in. And so Egypt is the kind of superpower of the day, uh, which means they assume that, hey, our gods are the biggest on the block. They're the most powerful. Uh, no one can defeat them. We're safe because we worship these gods, and this is our system, and we're in control. If As long as we do what these gods ask us to do, things are going to go right for us. Uh, and, and many of the people that have studied Exodus and kind of write about it and spend a lot of their time focusing in on, uh, have mapped out that each of the plagues uh, aren't just kind of random things that God are, is doing to show his power. They actually co correspond to Egyptian deities. And basically what you have here is the God of Israel, uh, not a God of another power, not the God of a nation, not a God that shows up with an army, but a God of a slave people 
that comes and says, hey, all these things that you are putting your faith and your trust in because you think they're powerful, I'm going to just whip them one after another. And so he starts with, you know, defeating the God of the Nile. And just the Egyptians say, well, God, the Nile's going to do this. And Yahweh goes, yeah, I'm, I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. And I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to demonstrate that I've got command over the gods of the harvest. I'm going to demonstrate that I've got command over this other God. And just continues to work his way down the chain of just saying, no, you think that God's going to protect you? He can't protect you against me. He has no control against me. And this culminates in the ninth and the tenth plague, uh, where the two most important Egyptian deities of that age, uh, Ara, the sun god, uh, and the ninth plague is darkness. Uh, and God says, you've got a God for making sure that there's light. There's no light for three days. Uh, and then finally, the tenth plague uh, against uh, Osiris, which is the god of death, which is kind of the main, probably the most important god they had. And both of these two gods were specifically connected to Pharaoh and the um, Pharaoh's firstborn son, which is the heir, uh, as they were semi-divine figures. They were kind of gods in men's flesh. Uh, but you see here in this passage in Exodus, God declaring his triumph and his ultimates that these cannot stand before me. They aren't just uh, less powerful than I am. They are no gods. They are false gods. And so he just absolutely declares victory over them through these plagues. And it's easy for us to say, I think, oh, well, that was back then. That was, you know, an ancient thing that all these people would set up temples to gods and they would go and sacrifice and have all these different systems. Um, because we live in a world that every aspect of our life isn't religious anymore. You know, we don't go out from our door and wonder if we're going to be safe traveling. Like if we're driving up to Dallas for Labor Day, uh, our biggest concern is highway patrol. You know, back then your biggest concern were bandits and robbers that would murder you if you were unlucky because there was no protection. Um, back then you lived in a world that a simple cut could get infected and kill you. You know, it was just a very different sense in which they were felt powerless against the world. And so they created these uh, deities to give them, they looked to for safety and happiness and fulfillment uh, and the meaning of life. Uh, and even though we don't do that in the same way, are there not things that we still put up to provide us with those same sources that they were looking for? We look to things to provide our ultimate joy, fulfillment, uh, satisfaction and meaning in life. Uh, in suburbia, is it not that we're looking for success, that we think, oh, if I can just achieve this amount of wealth, then I'll finally have made it. If I've got the perfect family, if I can keep up with the expectations of those around me. More and more in the social media age, people will seek influence or seek a platform that if I can just get this amount of uh, acclaim and this amount of uh, approval from other people, then I will have finally made it. You know, in, in suburbia, we don't build temples uh, to gods, but how often do we still sacrifice time and treasure and relationships and these things because we think in that, if I can just achieve that, I will finally have what I'm looking for, obtain the good life. These are things that only God can provide, but so often we seek them in so many different sources. And God still, even as he judged the false gods of Egypt, God still judges the false gods that we set up in our hearts today. John Calvin, uh, reformer in the uh, 1600s or something like that, um, described the human heart as a factory of idols, that we just continually put up something in the place of God that we look to to bring about the same things that the Egyptians did back there. It just looks different. And in the same way, God still judges false gods, either by destroying them and removing them from us, or sometimes by giving them to us and allowing us to achieve that and seeing that it really doesn't provide the thing that we hoped that it could provide 
for us. So let's continue and then finish uh, this passage. He says, picking up right where we left off, Then he, being Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptian for silver and gold jewelry, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men and on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Right, two things uh, from this that I think we can look at in, about God's judgment is the first is that it always comes with an invitation to join the people of God. Uh, there's a detail that's easy to mix. I actually don't think I've seen it before uh, studying for this, but in verse 38, it's saying the people of Israel went out and amongst them or alongside them was a mixed multitude. And this phrase is actually referring to uh, an ethnically diverse crowd of people that's moving along with them. Now, one thing about the Hebrew people, that's not an ethnically diverse crowd. That's all descended from Abraham and from Joseph, and it's one line. It's one ethnic group. But here scripture says that there's actually some other people that go out from Egypt with them. And it doesn't describe exactly who these people are. But I think it's safe to say, if you read this, that people was probably the Egyptians that saw what God was doing, saw how God judged their false gods, saw the power of the God of the Israelites, and said, I want to be on that team. Like, I, I've been raised in this belief system. I've been raised, this is my life. I've built it here. Uh, yet no more. I'm going with them because that's the God that's in control of the situation. And so I think that's something to, to look at is that through this judgment of God that he was bringing on the people of Israel, or sorry, was bringing on the people of Egypt, was actually an invitation for those people to join in with his people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, as they left and journeyed to the God, the land God had for them. They wanted to be a part of God's people. Um, I think it's noteworthy that in other plagues, and kind of as you look back, uh, the people of Israel were spared simply because they were the people of Israel. Uh, the land of Goshen where they were living was often re referenced as not experiencing the effects of uh, the different plagues that come. Uh, but here at this last one, it's not just their heredity, not just their heritage that exempts them from the judgment of God. God asked them to take a step of faith, to sacrifice this land, to put the blood along the door. And it's through this response, through this act of faith, that the uh, judgment of God actually becomes the gateway and the mechanism of the deliverance of salvation that they had been hoping for and praying for. So the people opposed to God, uh, like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, that, that wouldn't repent, wouldn't turn, for them, judgment was just judgment. It just ended poorly, and we'll see this next week, that Pharaoh, in his uh, sorrow, that turns to anger and leads him into even greater destruction than he's already experienced. But for the people of God with this judgment coming, they find themselves under the blood of the Lamb, and it's through that that God delivers them. And this rehearsal uh, of this event, the Passover, becomes a central part of the worship of the people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. It's one of the main religious festivals. It's one of the feasts. It's one of the central things that they remember, the central event of what uh, defines them as a nation, is that God delivered them 
from death by the slaying of the lamb. And they gathered yearly to remember the deliverance and to rehearse it and to speak of it to their sons and to their children. Uh, and it's no coincidence that this kind of maybe rings bells for us if we've grown up in church because it's not just uh, how God acted in that moment to deliver his people from the evil of Pharaoh. That God is actually in this moment painting a picture of how he's going to redeem all that come to him. That it's not just about Pharaoh and his evil and his wickedness, but it's how God is going to deal with evil and wickedness of the world once and for all. As we continue to read through Scripture, continue to progress, that we see that God uh, observes what's going on in the world, observes the brokenness of the world, and doesn't stay aloof and stand back, but he chooses to actually enter into our brokenness and our uh, Desperation and to come in the form of Jesus, that the person, the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh and the scripture says dwells among us, that instead of saying removed or back from our uh, brokenness, he comes in to take it upon himself. That, for, uh, that John the Baptist would see Christ coming down and would look at him and go, Behold the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world. The first Passover that they had was to prepare the way, not just for their deliverance then, but to help us to understand what God was going to do to bring about deliverance for us today. That God, through Jesus, would live a perfect life and die a death that he would not just uh, set an example for us, but he actually took the judgment of God on himself. That he took our sins and our brokenness and bore the punishment that was due us. This is what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. He says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that through his uh, resurrection, God would declare victory over the power of sin and death and evil and say that anyone who would come and find themselves under the blood of this lamb, uh, of Jesus Christ, could experience the same deliverance, an even greater deliverance than the people of Israel experienced. Uh, as the author of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so now we will transition here in a moment to uh, celebrating communion, but the invitation to us, I think one, is if we've never put our faith in Christ, um, just I would invite you to consider what he offers to you. you know, where is it that you have your faith? Is it in uh, the things of this world? Is it in your family? Is it in the faith of somebody else that, hey, surely if they're you know, good with God, then I'll be good with God as well? Is it at the end of the day, maybe you'll do enough good things that it'll outweigh the bad things in your life, and that hopefully will be enough? Um, Jesus, I think, is offering us so much more than that. Not to make you a better person, but to make you a new creation. Uh, Trent says this often, I think it's such a great line, that uh, the gospel didn't come to make good or bad people good. It came to make dead people alive. And that is what coming to Christ is, is experiencing this new life that's available to you. Not on anything, not on anything that you can do, but just on your faith in what Christ has already done for you. And if your faith is in Christ... Uh, if you're here as a believer, if you trust him for your ultimate deliverance from judgment, my question would be, is he your source of joy here and now, like today? We come to worship on Sundays, but what is your life like Monday through Saturday? What are you looking for for questions of ultimate significant, significance? Are your hearts, is, is your heart set on a functional false God that, hey, you know, things are great, but if I can only get this, then I'll finally be happy. I'll finally have the life that I wanted. I think... Christ is offering us a chance to set those aside uh, and to take him up on his invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good.
And so now we'll, we'll move towards a, a chance to celebrate uh, communion, a chance to remember that Christ's body was crushed for us, that his blood was spilled on our behalf in order to allow us to become a son, a daughter of God. If you haven't already, there's uh, elements in the back. You can go grab one. Uh, this is something that uh, you don't have to be a member of Heritage Park to do. We believe all uh, believers in Christ can celebrate this together, so we would invite you to be a part. Uh, and as we do that, as you move to get elements or as we prepare, I just invite you to spend a moment to prepare your heart uh, to do business with God, and then we will come back together and celebrate. So the passage we were in uh, today is the initiation of the Passover. It's the first time, it's the actual event this happens that then becomes an annual feast of the people of God. They continue to celebrate for thousands of years. I think about 2,000 years is um, the length of time that it took to between this moment and then when Christ comes. And then when we read in the Gospels about Christ's sacrifice, uh, that happens at this time of year. It happens when the Passover took place that he actually gathers the night before he's betrayed with his disciples to celebrate this remembrance. But what he does in that moment is he turns it around. He, he gives it the meaning that it was always meant to have. They thought, you know, they had grown up every year celebrating this with their family, celebrating with their community. And Christ said, hey, all this time you've been doing this to celebrate something that God did for his people long ago. But really that was just a prefigure and to prepare the way for what I'm going to do to deliver my people tomorrow. Uh, and it wasn't about, you know, everybody sacrificing their own thing for the sins of their family. It was about the Lamb of God coming to die once and for all for the sins of the whole world. That Christ said, I'm going to do what needs to be done in order to deliver my people. And so what was the Passover for us is now the Lord's Supper that we come and we remember not deliverance from Egypt, uh, but we remember Christ crucified and his body broken and his blood spilled. And so now if you've not done this before with us, there's like two layers of film or foil. The first one kind of take up and they've got the wafer on top. Can we put the scripture on and we'll read? This is Paul in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he continues. He says, In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes.